You're listening to TopCast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime, www.marvin3m.com slash TopCast. Welcome to another episode of TopCast. Tonight, we're going to be talking to a special guest... And uh, we're going to be talking about more about the Big Bang Bar project and some, also some uh, high-end restorations by some guy that maybe a lot of you may or may not have ever heard of. Um, somebody that works kind of quietly but works very, very well and does some really quality work. And somebody that's really been in the background of the hobby but helps us all a lot more than ever probably realized. So, uh, without a special, uh, without any more uh, ado, we're going to be giving him a call right now. Yes, special guest, special guest, special guest. We're going to be calling Kerry Stair. Um, he uh, once again worked on the Big Bang Bar Project. I'm going to be giving him a call right now. Get him on the phone. Hello, Carrie. How are you? It's it's uh it's Clay here. How are you doing? Hey Clay, how are you doing today? Good. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, great. Um, so we want to talk to you a little bit about you know your history in pinball and some of the restoration work that you've kind of done quietly, um, for your for your clients and also about the Big Bang Bar project. Okay. Okay. Great. Um, well, let's start with uh, how you got into pinball. Uh, Rick Sheevy is completely to blame. <laughs> he uh, he traded me a, uh, a parts for a computer he wanted for a uh, uh, Road Kings. That was the first pinball machine I ever had, and uh, it was a lot of fun rebuilding that machine. It had some it had some problems, but it was overall it was in real good shape, and. Uh, after that, uh, Rick got me two Cyclones, and I did those. And I actually got so insane on those, realizing that you know you could really redo these things, that I actually made silk screens, handmade silk screens for the Cyclone, and re-silkscreened the entire cabinet. Really? Uh, both actually it was three cabinets, and uh, then I did two pin bots, and then from there it just got kind of carried away, and uh, got into it pretty heavy. But Rick was the guy who got me hooked on it. And for those that don't know, Rick Shrevey is kind of a Chicago area, I don't know, do you want to call him an icon? Can we call him that? Yeah, you know, he's he's been around the block. He 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 would he's been there before any I mean, you know, he was back in the eighties, he was doing the stuff and buying truckloads of pinballs from operators that were closing and and he's been just you know, I, I actually would use the word legend, but uh he he's he's a spectacular person and just very knowledgeable and he was a great guy to kind of mentor me in the early couple of years doing this. You know, I could always ask him questions, and he had a relationship with all the designers. He introduced me to Ted Estes and and uh, Duncan and half a dozen guys at his parties, and it's just a, just a really great guy who's just been around the block. You know, he he doesn't show up, I don't think, on the news group or anything anymore, but he's got other things he's doing. But he's he's just a great guy. Anyway, he got me into it. Yeah, and he was the guy. He was actually working for. Uh, what uh, for a company that was doing UL testing for the Williams Valley Midway Company, 
So yeah, anytime he was working for Lucent, right? Lucent, Lucent right? In, a, uh, yeah, one of those environmental chambers where they test it, you know, down to certain temperatures and all kinds of stuff. And he was actually doing testing, and, and he actually did testing on the games that uh, that Williams was doing. So he got a chance to get to know a lot of the guys through that. Yeah, and he saw all the games before they, you know, they were available to the to the public. And he also got a lot of times he got to buy these games that they uh, that they gave the lab for the testing. So a lot of times he'd end up with some really really nice or you know just beautiful. Yeah, he always had some really neat stuff, no question about it. And the other thing that really made him legendary was he used to hold the Wednesday night party before Pinball Expo in Chicago, like every year, like clockwork. And yes, yeah. yes, and I think uh, I think a couple of years ago it got so big that he just said it, you know. It, it was too it was too tough to keep running, but he would do that and and you know for the guys in the area, the Chicagoland area, he throws a party um I think it's invitation only, but he's pretty free with the invitations i He throws a party once every couple of months to come out and to his place, and he's got a just a spectacular basement with pinballs and video games and and uh, he's just a great guy, just very giving to the hobby and very giving to uh to everybody involved in it i mean you know if if uh someone were to come to me and say Rick wouldn't help him, I'd be stunned because, you know, he just helps everybody. Yeah, and he, um, he also at his parties, the designers, the game designers would always show yes. up. And yes, he's good enough friends with a bunch yeah. of those guys that, that they would show. Pat, I've seen Pat Lawler at his parties. I've seen Ted Estes. And, you know, these guys respect him. He's been around for a long time, and he's just a really good guy. He's got no agenda. He's just he's just there for the fun of it. I heard the reason he stopped the parties is that, you know, he would, it would be like 2 a.m., and he kind of like try and get everybody out of there and then he woke up the next morning and there was some guys like sleeping in his lawn <laughs> from the night before because they didn't have any way he lived like in the middle of nowhere and there was no way for him to get home they were like from belgium or something and they were like sleeping in his front lawn you know and he said well i think that's it you know he's getting too big good guy and he's so giving i'm sure that you know <laughs> At some point, you got to, you know, I think he he started, he had, you know, 40, 50 guys there, and then, you know, it got to the point where there was 200 people. And, you know, you look at any house, 200 people, that's a boatload of people. I mean, you could barely walk in the place, but just, you know, it's a place to be, and, you know, he always threw a great show, and there was always great people there. Right. Just a really great guy. But anyway, so what year was that? for getting me into it. What year was that that you first started getting into it? You know, I'd have to say it was... Mid '90s, sometimes I I remember one of the first games I saw from him was I think No Good Golfers or maybe that was a couple years into it. But I remember he had a No Good Golfers. He bought one on closeout for like eighteen hundred bucks. I was pretty jealous that I didn't have the eighteen hundred bucks at the time. I'm kicking myself. But uh, that was one of the games I saw at his place pretty early on. So somewhere around there, I think I I'd been in the arcade side with him for a couple years before that. So maybe '93, '94, something like that. And did you right like right out of the right out of the shoot start doing you know restorations to the you know the best of your abilities and and just like honing your skills? No, the, you know the first the first couple I got running and cleaned up and and uh, you know I didn't really know too much about all the different things. I just knew to get them running. You know, being an electrical engineer, I just I knew to get them running electronically and and uh, get the displays working and all the stuff working right. But then I you know I I began to see playing at Rick's and, and seeing other people's games, that the the setup on the game was was, was kind of interesting, you know, having the flippers be a little more responsive, putting in all the right parts. I began to see that there was quite a lot to getting it set up to play well. And then from there, I began to see, 
you know, look at these. Some of these games are are cosmetically in a lot better shape. And uh, you know, about the time I got those cyclones, I realized that my cabinets were wasted. And uh, so I said, well, what about just re- the artwork's pretty easy. Why not about just re re silk screening them? So I must have spent four or five hundred hours on that project, re-screening those things, making the screens from hand, stretching the silk from, by hand, going through the whole thing. You know, it's just, it, but it was a kick. I mean, you talk, it just looked gorgeous when it was done. So we're not talking stenciling. You know, at that point, f- from the Cyclones on, at that point, I knew that there was a level that you could go to that was really out there. So you're not talking about stenciling the cabinets. You're talking about actually silk screening them. Yes. Yes, we built the screens. We built a little screen press. So we'd put the screen down in the cabinet and we'd squeegee the ink. It wasn't it wasn't even paint, it was ink onto the cabinet and then we'd hit the cabinet with the UV uh, ultraviolet lights to go ahead and lock it, lock it in and then we'd put the other screen down and register it and then squeegee the ink through it. It's wow. amazing. I still have the I still have the, the sample that we did first. I still have it here. So when's the last? What's the last cabinet that you that you ever tried that on? That was the first and the last. Oh really? We never, we never did that again. Yeah. It was just so much work. And by the time I got done selling the cyclones, I realized I had worked for about twenty five cents an hour. Right, right. You know, so it just like it just didn't pay to do that. But I mean, you can if you really have a, a a pressing need to go to that level. Of course, you can. Now, how many colors were on the cabinet? That's just a two color. So you had to make uh, you had to make two screens for each side. So you had to make uh, four screens for the top, and then you had to make uh, four screens for the bottom, and then two screens for the front. And so when it doesn't sound like a lot, but ten handmade screens <laughs> took a lot of time. So you paint them like you're the base black, and then uh-huh. you would do, and then a cyclone. What is red and yellow or something? It's orange and orange and kind of a bright yellow. Right. Okay. Okay. And the um, and you were using like Pantone style inks. You know. Um, we didn't even get that. We didn't even get that technical. What we did was we took the we took some samples and we went into the to the place where we bought inks and we just got as close as we could. I mean, I think they're exact matches, but we didn't even try to find the original Pantone colors and or anything like that. I just it didn't even hit us that there would be a standard for that at that point in time. Interesting. Okay, now the the screens. I mean, how did you actually make the screens? Like today, they. Somehow they do it on the computer, then they, um, you know, do a negative or a positive and show it off to to light, and it kind of makes the screen that way. But you obviously weren't doing that that well, way, right? Well, we did it old school, and basically what I did was I took a two by four, and I took a uh, a router, and I cut a slot in the two by four all the way around, and then I took this, I took the uh, two by four, and made it into the shape of a of a uh, you know cabinet, either the top or the bottom or the or front, whatever we needed. And then I, I got the screen, the, the silk, and laid it across there. And then what I did was I took stripped 12 gauge wire and shoved it into the the slot with the silk on either side of it, and pushed it down with a screwdriver, and worked my way all the way around until it was tight. And that's how we made it tight. Okay. And then uh, we went ahead and coated the entire screen with something with a with a chemical kind of a paste that is photosensitive. And then we uh, cut ruby lifts on the uh, the artwork. You know, took a ruby lift and cut it for exact for the, each of the individual colors. Now, wait, wait, wait. We, what's a ruby ruby lift? Ruby lift, lift is, is um, that's kind of old school. It's what they used to do to copy artwork and stuff. Is um, it's a red and clear sheet together, and you kind of pin it up on the side of the artwork, and then you cut 
you cut the, the the figure out and then you strip the uh, the red off. Hmm. So then you've got the white and the red, and then that's why they call it a ruby glyph. And anything that the red is there, it doesn't let the light through. And anything that's white, of course, lets the light through. So okay. you you make the uh, you make the image and put it on. You, you know, go ahead and lay the ruby glyph down on the on the paste, and then go ahead and shine a real bright light on it. And we we had to go out to the hardware store and make our own light. I mean, you're supposed to do all this high tech stuff with it. We just we were doing it for a song, but we got those screens made, and they were it was it was unbelievable. They came out great. Now, can you reuse those screens yeah. when you're all done? As a matter of fact, I've offered the screens to big time cabinets. I still have the screens, but uh, I'm not sure that you know that they would be all that interested in making that cabinet at this time. Maybe in the future. Right. Right, that's pretty interesting. I, I've never heard of anybody doing that before. Well, we didn't want to use stencils because we wanted to be able to reproduce it. I, at some point, envisioned that bunches of people would bring their cyclone cabinets to me and I'd screen them. That never worked out quite that way, but right. that's, what, that's what the original plan was. And now, after you got done with the inks, do you clear coat the cabinet or anything? Nope. The inks are UV protected and UV sealed. I mean, they, that's how you that's how you treat it to get it to dry is with UV, and it's... it's uh, very durable. Really? Okay, so just like the original, basically. Basically, I'm I'm guessing that I don't know what exact process they used, but I'm guessing it was very similar because we we were actually able to do the overstrike and everything just exact. I mean, you can't tell the difference between the cabinets we did and the cabinets from the factory with all the imperfections and everything. Wow. Okay, so what was your next uh, big twenty-five cent an hour project that uh, you know? Uh, we went to, <laughs> went to a pair of pinbots and. Uh, that's the first place that we had to strip mylar off the play field, and that was brutal. Um, we ended up using a, the the heat gun or hair dryer technique, right? And to peel them off. And uh, while we were doing that, we ended up getting a high speed, and uh, we peeled the mylar off that. Now the high speed mylar was just unbelievable to get the glue. It was like ten, twelve hours to get the glue off, whereas the pinbots were two, three hours we get the glue off. So I don't know if they used different adhesives on some of those, but man, that high, I swore I'd never do another high speed, no matter what. Hmm. It was so brutal. This but, was pre uh, the concept of free spray for getting mylar off, but of course... You know, I, always, we were making it up as we go. This was yeah. probably, uh, I gotta say, this is probably 97 or 98. Right. So, I mean, we weren't even, I don't think, I don't, I don't, I don't, I was not aware of anybody else doing anything like that. Yeah, the first time I heard about somebody removing mylar using the free spray spray technique, this guy emailed me. He said, you know, I was watching that Apollo 13 movie with Tom Hanks. And he says, uh, somebody said, yeah, why don't we use duct tape, you know, in, uh, you know, in space. And, and, you know, one of the engineers said, no, nah, it's, it's too cold. The, the, it just delaminates. The adhesive just delam- delaminates and the tape comes right off. And he said it was like, you know... A light bulb going off. Hey, why can't I free spray mylar off? Yeah, <laughs> you know, and that was uh, that was kind of the, the start of that. I forget the guy's name though. He was like the guy that started the whole thing, and I and I can't remember his name for the life. Of I me. remember seeing that. I have never tried that to this day. It works really well. I shouldn't say it works really well. It like it just depends on the on the actual play field. Some play fields it works amazing. It's just like it falls off when you do it. Others it doesn't do a damn thing. You know, and you end up using, you know, either the, you know, the hair dryer or the, uh, the goo gone, uh, technique. You know, so you got there's like three different ways of doing it. It just kind of depends on the play field. You know, some are some are easier to do than others. Absolutely. But the worst thing you like you said was the glue. 
Oh, some of it was on there, like like the Rock of Gibraltar, and then when you tried to get it off, you had to end up taking off the uh, the lettering and right, just a mess. So what did you end up doing with the high speed when you got all done? You know, it was so bad. It was so bad that I that I I, I kind of gave up on it a little bit, and I said, you know, I, I'll get the glue off, but when it got done, the insert lettering was kind of screwed up, and it was it wasn't a very it was one of those projects where I, I never should have bought it. It was way 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 too far gone, and I you know when you when you first get into it, you start thinking, oh man, I can do anything, but <laughs> there's some things that are worth it, some things that aren't, and I actually got to the point on that project where I had a I had a buddy in the area who was just starting off with pinball, and he was looking for a project. I unloaded the project on him. And he got it working, and it works great, and he loves the game, and he wasn't too worried about the cosmetic stuff. All right. So what I was actually unloaded that project because it was such a mess. <laughs> so what was the next uh, the next step up? Uh, I got a Fishtails, and uh, that started my love affair with the uh, WPC stuff. And that game was, was just a lot of fun. And uh, that's probably the funnest. I can remember playing that game. Cyclone and that game, probably the two games that got me hooked on pinball more than anything hmm. just really good games. i mean they're not complicated games or spectacular player games but they're just they're a lot of fun right very basic games anybody can get it fun to play right right okay so then i remember seeing um a restoration you did on a monster bash where you yeah did that was that was a couple years later right um, you know we got to the point right there in about 2000 um where we, I tried a, I tried a new, I tried a new thing. I took two used playfields. I took a Jurassic Park and a Twilight Zone, and I, I gave them to a guy that nobody'd heard of. Wait, wait, wait! You put them in a room together and they made it. <laughs> no, <laughs> almost. And it was I, uh, Jurassic I took them both Zone up to a guy or something. Named Bill Davis, who <laughs> was a, who was a guy who said he could he could recoat playfields, and uh, so I said, go ahead and recoat these, and I'll take them to the expo in 2000, and we'll see what it looks like. And uh, he he made he impressed me, and I think uh, I think at that point uh, he impressed other people too, taking a look at those two playfields. But uh, bottom line is, is uh, when we realized we could do that with the playfields, we started to get less concerned about scratches and and wear and other things because if you can, if you have a talented repaint guy and clear coat, you know you could uh, you could pretty much bring any playfield back to original or better. Right. Right, and so you know that, and then a couple of years, there's like two, three years later, you, you, you've got that monster bash, which is out on my website. I built, I built that for a customer in in Georgia, and then I realized how much it was to update the website, and I haven't done that too much in the future. I do have several on on CD that I need to some someday sit down and and go ahead and put up on the on the uh, web so people can see what we, what what was done. But and you were building. And you were building a lot of the metal parts, like the scoops and the and stuff, uh, in stainless at that you know in that kind of in that era, right? Yeah, I started in 2000. I think the Expo 2000. We were talking to some guys at Rick's pre-Expo party, and somebody pulled out an RFM protector that came on some of the factory games, and he said, you know, this is on some games but not on others. You think you could make something like that? And I said, oh yeah, I can make something like that. So we turned that out in about three days. We whipped those things out. And, and uh, yeah, and that was the birth of the carry protectors. Yeah, yeah. We you know we never even thought of the over the top stuff. What, what what Cliffy did, we never even thought about that. Uh, uh, I always thought that you know what basically if you can protect that inside edge from getting beat up, there's, there'd be no point coming over the top. But you know he's got a he's got a great 
great idea in the fact that if the wear is already there and you can't hide that, you know, that this is a great way to hide it by putting that protector there. Right. I use your protectors on, like, games that I've, you know, that either it's a new playfield install or it's something that I've gone through and, and fixed the hole and, and re-clear coated that I use yours. If it's just something, I, you know, that the play feels okay and it's got some hole where, you know, you can use the cliffies and it kind of sharpens it up. Absolutely. We both have... We both have a great little niche, and, and, you know, we, many, many years ago, we came to a gentleman's agreement that bottom line is if it was an over-the-top, it was his, and if it was in the hole, it was mine, and, and you know, we, we have a great relationship, and and uh, we both make a, a great product that I think enhances and keeps pinball machines from getting destroyed, so it's been a lot of fun doing that. Right, and you do it for pretty much all the WPC stuff, right? What's that? You You make protectors for pretty much all the WPC ones, right? Not all, but most the most that have a um, that have some kind of wall, a hole that goes in, right? You know, like Twilight Zone, we didn't need to do it. But if you ever look at a Twilight Zone, there's not a lot of wear on that edge going into the slot machine because the pinball never touches the front edge, either going in or going out, so it really doesn't get tore up too bad. You mean because um, it hits that kind of that rounded scoop on the back? You mean yeah, the, the ball fall, falls off the play field and hits the rounded scoop in the back, and when it's coming out. It goes up on top of that rounded scoop and usually hits coming down somewhere on the play field. doesn't hit that front edge, so the front edge never gets tore up. Same thing with uh, Star Trek in that uh, center lock, sh- you know, that center hole shot that starts all the modes. You don't see any wear there either. Now, the neutral zone, because you're hitting that target and it's bouncing around, that, that edge gets chewed up. Right, but, right. But, you know, basically wherever I saw a point, you know, getting all these games in and restoring them, if I saw a place on the play field that was typically tore up, that's what I went ahead and did. So what other kind of restoration, you know, techniques or stuff that you did that was, you know, uh, you know, different or new or, you know, or cutting edge for the time? You know, uh, there's so many guys that do that, and it's, it's been kind of beat to death in a bunch of different places. But, you know, I, I would say if, if someone were to say, what's the difference between you and Hutchins and, and Allen and some of the other guys that do just top-notch jobs, I would say that, that my biggest concern about a job is that the game is set up perfect. I like a game that plays perfect. I'm a kind of a player first. So if I were to compare myself, I would say that, you know, I would I would say that my games will probably be set up better. But, you know, the bottom line is, is all these guys do spectacular work, and every year they get better and better, same as I do with the stuff we do. Um, it's obviously a lot easier to rebuild a game if you've got all NOS parts you can stuff into it. Um, if you don't use any NOS parts, it's obviously a lot tougher to, you know, make it look sharp. But yeah. Yeah, I've always kind of been the kind of guy that wanted to use what I had and not just didn't want to go out and and buy a thousand dollars worth of of parts for a game. Um, you know, I'm fairly frugal when it comes to this stuff too, so that I never that doesn't help either. But I, you know, I've been doing a lot of stuff with like uh, bead blasting and using ultrasonic cleaners and stuff like that, and that stuff works really well. But it's obviously not going to be as good as if you could buy a you know, a brand new whatever it is, you know what I mean? You know, that's yeah, got brand I mean, uh, new zinc plating that, or whatever, you know. A lot of the stuff the last couple of years that we've been doing is, you know, trying to trying to make reproductions or trying to make parts. You know, the the scared the scared stiff slings are a great example. You know, that's just a hard part to if it's broken it's it's you know, it's a hard part to fix. It's it's a three dimensional uh, jigsaw puzzle. You can't you can't do it. So, you know, that's one of the the things we look for for, for reproductions just because you know, if you're going to continue to reproduce games, you're going to continue to re-restore games. You need to have a, a steady supply of parts, and so you know that's 
that's been the crux of a lot of the stuff since 2000 happened and, the, and Williams closed is, is can you get the parts and that's why so many of us hoarded I mean uh, kept parts you know <laughs> in big quantities because we, we wanted to have the ability to restore games into the future so you know you, you ended up buying 10 sets of this and 10 sets of that and 10 sets of this because you knew you know over the next couple of years you were going to see that many games easily now, what do you think of uh, like these new playfields coming out? All of a sudden, you know, you can get a playfield for Funhouse or or whatever. You know, it's kind of interesting. You know, I, I applaud the effort. Um, you know, the, the part of the problem is is that when you when you go to restore something, is is it's hard to get it exact. And and you know, the the collector community, wrong or right, is kind of picky. And uh, so, you know, you, I, I think as a, as a as a guy who's building restoration parts or or, or building reproduction parts. You know, you have to be careful because if you don't build a good enough part, the collectors aren't going to want it. And if you build too good a part so the collectors want it, it may not be economically feasible. Yeah, you price yourself out of the market. Exactly. I mean, you know, if I if I can make something that costs $1,000 and it's absolutely perfect, that's great. But you can almost buy NOS playfields for that same amount. Right. So the bottom line is is that you got to build a playfield that's cheap, that is nice, that everybody wants and is good enough for the collectors and, and really those are all mutually exclusive terms very hard to get them all in the same same category the guys that have done the job you know they've done a great job but it's just it's really hard to do that so right. i've looked into doing that at one point gene asked me to to do that for him and i and i i took a look at it and the equipment it would take and i said nah it's it's not it's not cost effective right it can't, it can't be done where you can make money now, are you still doing a lot of uh, you know restoration projects for for other people for clients today? No, I've I've uh, I've pretty much uh, pulled the plug on a lot of that kind of activity. First of all, I'm I'm busy, and uh, I just don't have the time that I used to have. Uh, secondly, um, it, it's it's again it's it's really not a cost effective endeavor for me. Um, I just don't make enough. And uh, bottom line is is that you know. This was a great hobby, and then when I made it my business, it, it became a lot less fun. And so I'm in the process right now of turning it back kind of into a hobby right. so that it's more fun. And, uh, you know, I still make my scoops and my protectors, and I'll continue to make multiple parts, and that's kind of fun. But, you know, it, it, the restoration becomes too much of a, this guy wants it by this date, and, you know, this didn't work out, so i got to start over and do that. It, it's it's just it's tough. Right. Yeah, a I, lot you know, of the, Chris Hutchins and Alan Shop and some of the guys that do this on a regular basis—they're spectacular studs. I, 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 I can't keep up with that. I wouldn't, we wouldn't even want to try. Right, because they can put out product in a timely manner. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, they're doing it full time, and and for me, it's always been part time. I have my regular computer business, so you know, if my computer business takes off for three weeks and I can't get to it, you know, I'm three weeks behind. So. Right. Right. Okay. All right, let's uh, let's take a little break. I'm going to run a couple ads, let you rest your voice, and sure. we'll come back in about one minute, and we'll talk about the Big Bang Bar Project and how you got involved in that. Okay? okay. So just hold on a second. Don't go anywhere. Sure. Hey, George, I just had to call and tell you about this really great magazine I got. It's called the Pin Game Journal, and it's the only magazine dedicated totally to pinball. It's got great articles and interviews with designers and everything. No, George, I won't loan you my copy. Who knows where you'll take it to. You're going to have to go to PinGameJournal.com and get your own subscription. But George, the guy says that each issue will get mailed whenever he feels like it. What's the deal with that? All right, George, I gotta go. Gotta call Elaine 
and tell her, I can't believe how good this magazine is. Topcast is brought to you by Pinball Life. Give your pinball machine new life with parts from Pinball Life. We ship pinball parts worldwide. Pinball Life is located in the great city of Chicago. Their phone number is 773-202-8758. We have an open door policy and you're welcome to call us with your questions and concerns. 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Central Time, Monday through Friday. Their website is at pinballlife.com. Pinball Life. No hassle, it's just the parts you need fast. Okay, we're back with Carrie Stair. Carrie, you still with me? Sure. Okay, I'm running a, um, back in 2005, the fall of 2005 at Expo, I went to BIT and saw you working on the Big Bang Bar project, and we've got a webcam, and right now I slipped a tape in, and I'm uh, showing some video footage I took while I was there with, uh, with you and a couple other people that were working there. So, how did you get hooked into this Big Bang Bar project? How did that whole thing start out? Well, I got a call from one of the one of the people that works um, with with Gene down there, and, and uh, he asked me if I would consider um, coming down and helping the project. Um, they were in a situation where they needed some help with production and needed some help with getting a direction and, and getting it finished up. And uh, so I said, "Yeah, I'll come down and we'll talk and we'll see we'll see what we can do." And went down and talked with Gene, and you know, Gene and Kim are just wonderful people, and and we sat and talked for I don't know a couple hours well into the night and uh you know I said I'd take a crack at it and but I you know I, I made it very clear to them that I didn't want to wrench all those games I didn't want to make 200 games I just was out of the, the scale of what I wanted to do but I said I would you know definitely wrench the first dozen or so and make sure that you know the processes were in place and teach the guys how to do it and show them how to put it together and take it apart and and so you know we we moved forward from there and it was it was a project and it, it had multiple issues and problems that were all worked through and and uh you know i gotta i gotta plug gene a little bit here he he had so many opportunities to back out of that project and so many times where it just seemed like there were insurmountable odds and he just he just kept plowing forward and at great personal cost you know he he's he's every guy that gets a big bang bar is getting it because gene was willing to lose money on it and uh you know a lot to be said for the fact that the guy did exactly what he said he was going to do. And uh, But we got involved, and I got to the point where I, th- I think we had made the first dozen or so, and and uh, at that point, you know, I think they shipped a bunch of them for Rojas to beat Rojas over to the over to Europe. And and the guy who's been instrumental s- since that time on it is, is Fred. Uh, Fred has done a spectacular job of keeping everything together and working on it. He's been the guy that's been directly responsible for managing and making sure the other games were all built right. He's done just a great job. And just to, and, just, uh, just to let people know, the Rojas thing was that after the summer of, what, 2006, you couldn't ship anything to Europe that was lead-based. That's correct. So all the jeans, all the boards that were bought from, you know, Whiteco through Capcom, uh, were made in you know the mid '90s, and of course they were all soldered with with lead-based solder. Right. So after that point, um, you know legally Gene couldn't get those into Europe, so he had to beat that deadline, which was I think it was July 2006. Yep. You know, yep. So he had to beat the deadline. I don't remember how many games were shipped. You know, it really wasn't that really wasn't something I was worried about. I was just worried about getting everybody trained. My my job was more to make sure that the guys that were building them knew what they were doing, knew the steps to do it. Um, you know, because there's there's a there's a process to building anything that complicated, whether it's a car or pinball machine or something. There's certain steps that have to be done in certain orders, and 
and parts have to be pulled. And, you know, to get the process down to the shortest amount of time possible with a, with a superior job, you know, you have to do it a certain way. So, you know, that was primarily my job was to get the production set up and running and, and make sure everybody knew what was going on. And, you know, it, it's, uh, it's a great project, and, and Gene and Fred and Kim and just a host of other people down there, I don't even remember everybody's name, but... They just did a great job and continue to do a great job, and I believe they're, you know, from what I'm hearing on the news group, I believe they're almost finished with it. So, Yeah, we talked to Gene just the other night, and he said he has, basically they're all done. He has ten more just to basically put the play fields in the cabinet and test them, and, and that's, that's it. But, you know, yeah, but no one, all no one will ever assembly. know what, what kind of a big job that was, but that is a huge job to build pinball machines, especially if you've only got a couple of guys. I mean, it's a huge job. Well... So when you came into the project, how big of a disarray was it in? Well, I wouldn't say it was in disarray. I, I would say that there was a there was there was some focus and, and direction issues that needed to be resolved. And, and basically, you know, I, I, the way they presented it to me is they just needed a direction. We needed to move forward. What were the steps to get it to the next next point and and to keep it moving forward? And and so when we sat down and went through the process, you know, I'm an engineer, so for me, the process, you know, we grab a whiteboard and we say, these are the things that need to be done, this is the order they need to be done in, and, and just kind of push the process along and, and see, you know, what are the steps to make this process happen, and and so, you know, we just we just processed and moved forward, and, uh, you know, I think... I think uh, at that time, and I and I don't know the history of this very well, so I may mess it up. But I think Bear Cave had been the two guys with Bear Cave had been involved before then, and I think they had left for a variety of reasons. And uh, you know, basically, they got to the point where they needed someone to just spearhead the production side of it, and that's why they called me. They knew that I was you know a production guy and I could get it done. So, so were they basically doing your job before you walked into it? You know, I can't really speak for what somebody else has done, but. It was my understanding that they were basically handling the production before I got there. So I, you know, but I, I again, I can't speak to what they were actually will, were were not doing because I wasn't there when they were there. But it was my understanding that they did the production. Now, when you walked into this, were all the parts available? I mean, was everything made and ready to basically just bolt onto the these play fields? Or no, was there... I wish it would have been that easy. Um, there were a lot of sub assemblies that were missing small parts. There were a lot of um, little parts that we didn't know we needed because we hadn't taken apart the original machine and you know one of the first things I did was take the original machine all apart and uh, Gene was very worried about that he was convinced I couldn't get it back together but uh, we uh, we were able to put it back together without too much trouble but to you know figure it out get the play fields dimpled you know the big thing about a new play field is it has to be dimpled so the, the parts go on directly and and I've yeah, I go in the right place. Bash thing on my website about how to go through and build a paper template, and only this this particular time we couldn't build a paper template because we had to do 200 games, and a paper template's just not going to stand up to 200 games. So we built a, a thin sheet of we got a thin sheet of aluminum and built an aluminum template, and had to drill the holes in the aluminum template and and get the aluminum template set up, and so you know you had to do top and bottom with this template. Right, you had to build. Process. You had to build two templates, really, right? That's well, we actually we actually built. I actually built three templates. I built one for the bottom, and then I built uh, one for the for the top right and one for the top left. And uh, a lot of the holes in the bottom, like for the sling for the sling area and stuff, I just drilled those by eye, by you know just eyeballed those because um, they were relatively straightforward. But 
the ones at the top we wanted to go ahead and build a template for. So of all the things in this project that was the most challenging, what was it? Um, well, challenge, you mean challenging for me or challenging for the team? Well, I just mean for the whole project. I mean, you know, there had to be something that was just unbelievably difficult to achieve, you know, on many different levels. I mean, what, yeah, for you and the team, what was most challenging? I'd say the most challenging thing for me originally was, was the wiring harness. Um, getting that on, getting it all set up, getting it to work right, getting all the wiring color soldered on. There's a lot of soldering on a wiring harness. Uh, the first couple that I built, it was just it was just an amazing amount of work. It just took hours and hours of bending over and soldering things as fast as you could solder them. And uh, my soldering skills are, are decent, but are not production quality. So you know, it took me a lot longer, I'm sure, than it took. I was watching the, the little uh, girl that was working there for him after she watched me do it. I watched her do it. She did it about a third of the time. It was kind of embarrassing, but um, I would say that getting that figured out and getting all the wiring done, that was probably my most complicated job, but who now? Who actually made the harnesses? Uh, you know, that's that's uh, there was quite a process. There was uh, there were several people involved with several companies involved with the making of the different parts and putting together the different sub-assemblies Because uh, I obviously didn't want to do it, and of course Gene, Gene and company didn't want to do it. So they hired that out for a couple different people, and and uh, I don't remember exactly who was there for the wiring harnesses. But the first couple that they did were were pretty far off. There were wire colors that were wrong and some other issues, and, and that made it kind of exciting. You know, when you plug something in and you're not sure that the wires are right and you're trying to figure out which color goes where, it can be kind of exciting. So, but, I mean, uh, how, we got it all straightened out, and, and uh, I think eventually they switched to a different wiring harness manufacturer and got it got some of the issues straightened out. So do you but just making a wiring harness, you know, that's kind of a lost art. I mean, it's, you know, it's got the wire pegboards and the 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 girls doing it. If you ever watch them do it at Stern or or any place, it's, it's it's you know it's quite a process to go ahead and build a wiring harness like that old school. Well, is that how they were doing it for you? Yeah, that's how they were doing it. Because you know, if for people that haven't seen it, there's this giant. It must be an eight by eight sheet, and they put pegs in it, which are is a location for like each switch, and then take a wire of the right color and wrap it around the peg, and then route it through some other pegs and you know, do that for each wire, and it's like you said. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty labor intensive. You know, that's the that's the biggest problem with the cost on pinball machines is so much of it is is uh, so labor intensive. So when they made that harness, were they making it that same way as Stern was doing it? I believe so. You know, they they made this the harnesses off site, but that's what it looked like when we got the harnesses. It wow. looked like that. That's the way they had made it. Do you know how much that particular assembly costs? I have no idea. Okay, I was just curious, you know. <laughs> One that. of the things I never asked. Yeah, you never asked that? You didn't I never asked know. what the costs were. You didn't want to uh, know. You know, I really didn't want to know. Right. Um, I didn't care. Bottom line is is that, you know, my my whole point was, hey, we need we need 15 of these parts soon because we're trying to put together 15 of these games. So, you know, I, I was more focused on, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, it, matter of fact, the first play field that I started... I think I kind of ticked Gene off a little bit because I just grabbed a playfield. I didn't even know there were differences in the playfield, so I grabbed a prototype playfield, and that's the one I did all the work on. As a matter of fact, I think Gene Gene made a funny comment later on. He said, "Well, since this one's kind of messed up, you can have this one." <laughs> but um, well, what do you mean there was? What, you mean you made prototype playfields? Yeah, he made. I think he made ten or fifteen prototype playfields with with different color inserts and 
you know, whatever the original, the original 15 prototypes had, they had a different than what was specified in the print for the production games. And he did this on purpose? What's that? He did this on purpose? He made these? Yeah, he made, he made, uh, he made 10 that were going to be special, I think, or 15, I can't remember the numbers, but he made several that were going to be special, and I grabbed one of those special playfields instead of one of the production playfields. And that was your experimental base. <laughs> so he wasn't too happy that I grabbed one of those. I didn't know there was a difference. Right. He never, I mean, you know, I, I, I guess I had remembered him saying something about it, but I just didn't figure the prototypes would even be up at the production facility. I figured they would be the last ones done. And what are the prototypes? So I grabbed one of those and, and did all my yeah, did all my work on that one. So did all your Anyway, hacking. he wasn't too happy about that, but... And he so was, what was it, just different insert colors? Is that the only Yeah, different insert colors, and there was a couple of, I don't, I don't remember what all the minor changes were, but there were there were some things that made it different. Huh. And what does Gene do with the prototypes? Were they sold at a higher dollar level? Yes, I believe they were sold to collectors who specified it, and I believe there was an additional cost. And, and uh, you know, Again, you know, when you start talking about the numbers and stuff, I really wasn't too concerned about that. My job was production. So I was always worried about: Do I have enough of these to make this? Do I have enough to go and do this? And and uh, you know, so it's kind of a different worries. Fred was Fred was more involved with the paperwork end of it and making sure the part numbers matched and the prints were right. And you know, he was he was doing that kind of stuff. I was more concerned with getting the playfields built. Now, was there any like major mistakes where? You know, you bring a part in. You know, you just spent thirty grand for a part, and then you find out, well, hell, it was the wrong part, or you know, it didn't fit, or something. <laughs> you had to remake it. I mean, I've heard stories that Gene went. If there was a mistake to be made in this process, Gene made it and paid for it. You know, which is part of you know one of the reasons. You know, because he's brand new; he's never done any of this before. You know, it's it, you know, there's you know, I I can't I just can't imagine how complicated this whole thing would be. You know, you know, I, I think. Uh, I think that the truth of the matter is, is that, that there were some mistakes made, but I don't think they were Gene's mistakes. I think they were print. The prints were wrong, or the the people that made made it made it off the print. They made a mirror image instead of what the print said, or stuff like that. But there there actually wasn't that many mistakes made. Uh, you know, there were there were a couple of show stoppers or, or show slowdowns that occurred. The, the first was the wiring harnesses really dragged out, and that, that slowed us down. The second was the the playfield clear coating that that Churchill did was just it was it was unbelievable. I mean they they had it was too thin in areas and too thick in other areas and they they just, it just looks like they had done it in a big hurry and it just looked like crap. It wasn't it wasn't mixed right so it was too soft and it was you know there was there was the first playfield that we got up and started playing we realized that it was scratching the heck out of it after 50 games and we said you know this isn't the way a diamond plate or you know a, a clear coat is supposed to wear. And these things have been drying for a year. So, right then and there, Gene made a decision that you know we were going to do this right. And so we took apart the five or six playfields we had done, and and we took all the playfields to make. But it was I'm sure it was expensive. It, it couldn't have been cheap. Now, did uh, who did that? Did, did Churchill do it again? No, or? he had he had somebody in house do it. Um, he had somebody that he knew down there that that was uh that could do clear coat and, and they went ahead and did it in house. He's got his own clear coating area room, painting room now that he's doing play fields and stuff in. So they they use that room and uh they did it themselves cuz Churchill Churchill wasn't going to wasn't going to do anything for us. Were they was it because the production numbers were so small, you know, you only needed, you know, 200 play fields so they were just not very receptive to anything? I I don't think Churchill cared. 
you know, about it's not that they're a bad company or they're bad people. It's just it's it was such a small job, and you know, I'm sure that I'm sure that in the cosmic scheme of things, they were they they did it as a favor, and they didn't want any more anything more to do with it. Right. Right. So, hmm. so you know, it's just it, it wasn't a, it was it was done poorly to start with, and that and that caused problems, and we had to go back and redo some stuff, but and that that slowed things down. But I think that's the biggest problem that we had per se. Um, you know, I'm sure Fred, if he was on the phone right now, could correct me and say there were other issues. But for the most part, you know, Fred handled the issues that came up. He got the stuff done. He got the production parts in. You know, if there was a part that was made wrong, we sent it back and had it remade. And you know, it, but there was there was relatively minor amounts of that, though. I you know, I don't know what you've heard, but there wasn't that many that many problems. Right. There were some things that were done incorrectly, but that more from an inexperience and a, the prints were wrong or, or the print was different than actual or, or something along those lines. And, you know, we, any kind of an engineer, any, anybody that, that's determined and has a can-do attitude, you just work through those things. Yeah, I, I just I heard stuff like, you know, Gene would order a part and spend, you know, 20 grand to have the part made and then found out that, you know, some guy in Chicago had, you know, bought some Capcom stuff and had a whole garage full of them and was willing to sell them for, you know, you know, yeah, well, you know, I, hundreds I had of a bunch dollars of Capcom or something that, that Gene that Gene ended up purchasing from me that we, you know, we did some horse trading on towards the Big Bang Bar and stuff and and you know it, it saved some time I'm sure but you know it, it the bottom line is is that uh, the prints were pretty much right and and everything was pretty much done. You know the way the prints were specified, and it, you know there were some issues that had to be worked through. But all in all, it was it was uh, you know it was just something that you go through in any process that complicated. You're going to have glitches. Now Gene's talking about doing Kingpin. If he does go ahead with that project, do you see that as like he's gone? He he's ex- now has this experience, and that do you think that project will go just that much more smooth? Um. Well. I got to be honest. I, I have I have some reservations about Kingpin. I, first of all, it's a game I would have rather done first because I like the game better. But I think the difference for Gene is going to be uh, I don't think he has any more board sets left, so he's going to have to remanufacture the boards. Right. I don't think that's going to be nearly a slam dunk. I think that's going to be complicated. I think that they've got some some really significant technical issues they're going to have to resolve. Um, are those chips still available? Uh, can they get them made for the price that he thinks he can get them made for? Um, the one chip that nobody seems to know what it does, are they going to get a hold of the guy and buy the rights to figure out what that chip does? They've got those kind of issues just on the chips. The other difference is I think Big Bang Bar, they had the bill of materials and they had the complete set of drawings. I don't think they've got that for Kingpin. So that's a big difference when all the engineering's not done. How about from... Uh, like on the top side of the playfield, there's a, seems to be a lot of molded plastics on Kingpin. Is, are those going to be, you know? Well, that that kind of stuff can all be duplicated. The problem is, is that do you have drawings? Right. See what it, what it comes down to on all that stuff is, if you can't send drawings to the manufacturer, what do you send them? You right. send them apart and say, make a bunch like this. He looks at you like you're crazy. So you got to give me drawings. So you know the problem is that there might be nine hundred or a thousand drawings on that game. Are you going to pay somebody to AutoCAD all those drawings? And how much is that going to cost? Right. Right. And, you know, that may be a, just an outrageous sum of money. And if you're only trying to divide that up amongst 300 games, that's brutal. 
you know, see, the, the, the whole thing about a pinball machine is the economy of scale. You know, we can spend 25000 or 50000 or 100000 on engineering because we're making 5000 of these games and it only works out to 125 bucks a game. When you're only making 300 games, there's no economy of scale whatsoever. And that's why individual games, when, you, when someone talks about making a run of 300, the games have to be hideously expensive to make. And they have to sell for hideously for hideous expensive or else you lose your shirt on it. And I don't think Gene's ready to, to lose what he lost on Big Bang Bar. Um, you know, he we, when we talked to him uh, last week, he said he lost like three hundred thousand dollars on that project. Um, I don't think he's planning on doing that with Kingpin. That's for sure. You know, who well, would? <laughs> honestly, unless he charges like ten grand for Kingpin, he's right. going to lose the same amount of money because without those drawings being done, without some of that other stuff being done, he has he has to have to spend a lot of money to get all that stuff done to get it to the point where Big Bang Bar started. Because remember, with Big Bang Bar, he started with all those board sets, and he started with all those drawings. It's a big deal if you don't have both of those. So, you know, I wish him luck. I, I, I want Kingpin to be successful. I'd like to get a Kingpin. It's a beautiful game. And I think it's uh, it's more fun to play than Big Bang Bar, in my personal opinion. But, um, you know, I, I just I, I want Gene to be successful, too, because, you know, the, the number of manufacturers that can afford to take a $300,000 hit on a project is is a pretty small number. Most of them go out of business for something like that. So yes. I want him to be successful next time because if he's not successful and he doesn't make money to help pay off this loss on this one, then he's out of business. Right. So, you know, I, I would like to see him be successful, and I just hope he does the math on the, what it's going to cost and, and, and has a real good idea what that math is going to be because otherwise if he picks a number in the sky based on anything that Big Bang Bar was, he could get hurt again, and I just don't want to see him lose a bunch of money. What, as far as like the the timing, you know, Big Bang Bar took what three years to? Is it three years or is it four years? God, it's, it's I guess three years. Do you think Kingpin, given you know the problems that you just outlined, do you think that's going to take a lot longer, or do you think maybe he could do it quicker? You know, production issues um, with that. You know, I. Gene and I always, I, I always would tell Gene, I said, you know, he, he would ask how long Big Bang Bar is going to take, and I said, well, how many people are going to be building them? Because the bottom line is, whenever you ask the question how long, you have to say, well, how many people are working on it? If I have 50 people working on it, we could be done in a year and a half. If I have five people working on it, it's going to be five years. You know, the bottom line is, it's all how many guys working on it, and how many games can they do a week, and, you know, then you multiply it out, and that's, that's what you get. And speaking of which, how many people were actually doing assembly on Big Bang Bar, and where and where did you get these people from? You know, he 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 ended up hiring um, a company up in Chicago, and I'm I'm not familiar with the names, nor nor do I even want to say them on the air. But the, the companies that he hired had you know five ten employees that were that were working on it. He had five or ten employees working on the bottoms, and then they go over to the other side, and five or ten employees working on the tops, and. And so you know, there, if there's enough people doing it, and, and you're you're paying a set fee per per unit, you know, you just factor that in. It's not a big deal. But all of production comes down to you know, when you talk about how long, it's it's how many people. Right, <coughs> right, right. So you said you like Kingpin better. What do you like about Kingpin that's better? Um, you know, Kingpin is kind of an unusual game in the fact that it has two different modes. It's kind of like Safecracker. You know, Safecracker, you have a regular mode, and then you have this assault mode, which is kind of interesting. Kingpin's kind of the same way. You have a you can play it in a regular mode, 
where you're, you're playing just whenever you lose the ball, that's the end of your ball. Or you can play it in a timed mode. And uh, the timed mode's pretty cool. It's kind of like Safecracker again. But uh, the uh, the Mafia or the uh, uh, Swing in 20s kind of theme with the Kingpin, you know, being the being the gangster, kind of a kind of a better theme for me in a family-oriented type house. I mean, he actually Big Bang Bar and Kingpin. Neither one of them are particularly family family-oriented, but it's a lot easier to sell the wife and kids, I suppose, on the on the gangster than it is on the the topless uh, serving girls and stuff. Right. So for me, that that's that's part of it. And, so does uh, Kingpin give you a choice, like at the beginning of the game, pick time mode or pick standard mode type thing? You know, I've I've only played the game twice, so I don't know whether that's actually in the ROMs where you have to go into the and change a setting, or whether you have to, uh, or whether you have to, or whether it's something that you can choose at the beginning. Okay. Okay. But uh, I do know that 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 is possible. It's a neat game. Be right back. I'm just gonna run a run a 46 second ad, and we'll be right back. Carrie, hold on. Topcast is brought to you by Marco Specialties, your pinball parts superstore. Visit their website at marcospecialties.com. You can search for parts by game name, game make, or part number. Marco Specialties was founded in 1985 and is headquartered in Lexington, South Carolina. They specialize in pinball parts, supplies, books, and anything pinball. Marco has been online since 1996 and is the web's oldest and largest pinball parts supplier. Their new 12,000 square foot distribution center services 25,000 customers in over 50 countries. Feel free to call Marco Specialties at 803-957-5500. Marco Specialties, your pinball parts superstore at Marco Okay, we're back with Carrie. Uh, Carrie Stair, once again, he uh, helped with the Big Bang Bar project. So overall, what, how long were you actually working on this project, Carrie? Uh, you know, I think we uh, we started in uh, in September, and, and my part of it was finished by, uh, I want to say, June. Okay. And were you, ha- you know, I mean, did you get along okay with Gene and, and the, you know, your... Oh, absolutely. Gene's... You know, Gene's Gene's like everybody's grandpa. He's he's a good guy. You know, he's 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 got his quirks and he's you know, a little eccentric like everybody's grandpa. But he he's a nice guy and he he means well and he I think he's always got um, everyone's best interests at heart. I mean, he's there's not an there's not an evil bone in his body. He's just a nice guy. Yeah, I I kind of get that feeling talking to him that that you know he he's straight up and that he's not. He's not going to cause anybody any problems, you know. Unless... Oh, he's not trying to hurt anybody. He's right. not trying to right. steal any money from you or get you for anything. He's just, you know, he just wants to get the job done. And he's yeah. a good guy. And he's a little eccentric, but I guess you'd almost have to be to take a project on like this. You I know mean... what? If he wasn't eccentric, he'd never have done the project. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, have you played any of his Pinball 2000 games? I have played his uh, the Pinball 2000 games he has set up at his place. You mean like the Wizard Box? Yes. Okay, because you know he was talking about that too. Um, you know, I don't know, you know, if he, if he could make you know like a replacement playfield for you know where you could take a Wizard Blacks playfield and slip it into a Revenge from Mars, you know, um, you know, uh, frame. But um, you know, what's your feeling on that on that game? You know, in in my opinion, I think the game is would have been the best of the of the pinball uh, two thousand games. To you know, would have been even better than RFM. It has a lot of promise. The software that he has in the game that I saw and played is very unfinished. It's it's basically just a counter software. I mean, it, as you hit targets and stuff, it adds points, and there's some very low level graphics that are done, you know, to do all that stuff. But it is it is a functional game in the fact that it does have a score and it does start a ball and finish a ball and 
you know, but there's there's really not too much in the way of sound and and video that's that's done. It's just kind of a, almost like a caretaker program or a uh, uh, kind of the default 2000 program, and it's got it's got some stuff for Wizard Blocks, but it's it's really it's really not ready to be finished. I, I think you'd have probably 85 percent or 80 percent of the software still to write on that to make that into a finished game. Right. Right now, how about Kingpin software? How finished did that feel? You know, again, I've only played the game twice, but I think the software on Kingpin feels very finished. I, I think it's, I think it's a, uh, I think it's a finished game. I, I, I think the five or six people that have the game, um, you know, I, and I happen to be good friends with one of the guys that has it, would say it's, it's a good game. I mean, it's a lot of fun. Hmm. Was there any particular? You know, playfield toys or features or anything that you know really you know kind of stood out in your mind. You know, I remember playing the game, and I remember I remember doing fairly well at playing the game. And uh, but I, I'll be honest with you, it was five or six years ago, and I I, rever- I remember very little of the gameplay itself. I just remember thinking to myself at the time, "This is a neat game. I hope this <laughs> hope someday I can get one of these." And then you know, I asked the guy what what he had into it, and I I said, "Well, I guess we won't be getting one of those." Right. Hmm. Interesting. Now, who's were you playing? Uh, at the time, I believe the o- at the time the owner was Pat Choi. I I I don't want to. Oh, talk Pat! About who Pat had a now. kingpin. That's, that's huh? Not really a place, but Pat owned it at the time, and I remember playing that in Big Bang Bar. Both at, at they were together in the same place. He had one of each, and they were they were uh, a lot of fun to play. Wow! Wow! That's yeah. Pat did a uh, nice seminar at the last expo, so yeah, that's kind of interesting that. Uh, that he had them both, but he uh, he sold them then. In a sense, is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, I think he, I think he got them, and I think he played them, and I think he realized that you know he either didn't want to keep them or he he saw an opportunity to turn a profit. And you know, the problem is when you're when you're in a when you're in the pinball business as a, as a, as a business, you know, you can't get emotionally attached to the games, and that's that's tough because you know when you spend 400 hours rebuilding the game, you're you're emotionally attached to it whether you like it or not. Right. Right. Yeah. Be it or not. Well, we've been going for at it for an hour. I'm gonna I'm gonna call take it to a close. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Kerry? No. I mean, you know, feel free to call me anytime. You, you want to talk about stuff? I like I said, I don't know how much I can add. I I really was just kind of a minor part of everything. Um, the guy you really ought to interview if you want to talk about Big Bang Bar is Fred, because he's been the guy that's that's handled the vast majority of the issues there. And if you've already talked with Gene, you know, between Gene and Fred, they know 99% of what's going on with that project. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Kerry. I really appreciate it. And this is, again, Kerry Stare, um, talking about his experience with Big Bang Bar. And um, this is TopCast, and that's all for tonight. Thanks again, Kerry. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Clay. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye.